0: Hello, and welcome to Climate Fix Podcast. Here we dive into evidence-based solutions to climate change and various other pressing environmental issues. This podcast is created by Americans for Nuclear Energy, a pro-nuclear environmental organization. We take no money from industry or special interest groups. All donations are from individuals like you, interested in a grassroots scientific movement to solve the world's most pressing scientific problem, global climate change. We hope you approach these ideas with humanism and an open mind. Our mission statement is as follows. Nuclear energy is safe, cheap, plentiful, clean, and efficient. It has the capability to stop and reverse climate change while addressing the ever-growing demand for electricity globally. We strive to educate American citizens about this technology and to dispel misconceptions with facts. We firmly believe that both human civilization and industrialism can easily coexist with a healthy environment. Join us in helping to plan a prescription for a feverish planet, or as we like to say, a climate fix.
1: This is your host, Phil Ord. And this is your co-host, Colby Kirk. The name of this episode is called Selling Power, Not Fear. We talked to Brett Kugelmas director of the Energy Impact Center, and host of the Titans of Nuclear podcast. Brett is a very inspirational speaker and ardent supporter of nuclear power as a means to really get runaway climate change under control. In a controversial view, Brett is convinced that the nuclear industry itself has engaged in scare tactics surrounding nuclear power, severely hobbling most nuclear build-out since the mid-1970s. We talk about this and other issues in the industry that need fixing, in order to actually grow again.
0: Here's some background information on our guest. Brett is a former technology entrepreneur and has dedicated his focus to climate and energy challenges. From 2012 to 2017, he was an early pioneer in commercializing drone technology. He founded, ran, and sold a business called Airframe, which specialized in internet-controlled drone fleet technology. This company involved diving into complex technical, regulatory, and public opinion frameworks. was eventually acquired by a Fortune 500 company. Brett attended undergrad at Stony Brook University, where he received a Bachelor's of Science in Mathematics. In 2011, he completed graduate school at Stanford University, receiving a Master's of Science in Mechanical Engineering.
1: Brett has been involved in many projects. In 2007, he worked as a roboticist at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center, where he worked on a lunar rover control device. In 2008, he was a researcher at the UC Berkeley Condensed Matter Physics Lab, and focused on scanning tunneling microscopy analysis of organic semiconductors. In 2009, Brett was a mechatronics engineer at NanoSolar, where he was working on thin film solar design and automating solar manufacturing processes. From 2010 to 2011, he was a lead researcher at Panasonic Innovation Lab, working on a concept shareable foldable electric city car.
0: Motivated by the dire threat of climate change, Brett has been serving as managing director of the Energy Impact Center since 2017, which is a DC-based research institute that analyzes solutions for a net negative future by 2040, and is especially interested in exploring the challenges and opportunities for the role of nuclear power in deep decarbonization. Many know Brett from his hosting of the Titans of Nuclear podcast, which he started in 2018 doing hundreds and hundreds of interviews with nuclear power experts across the fields of economics, policy, and technology. He also has a large presence on YouTube, delivering many speeches and lectures to various universities, organizations, conferences, and political entities.
1: Wow. Brett has some great accomplishments and successes in rubber-to-the-road applications of engineering. It's no easy feat to start your own highly successful company and sell it to a Fortune 500 company. He has also dedicated his time into doing the homework necessary to truly understand the energy and climate problem, and genuinely is working to keep humanity in a thriving position.
0: It's also great that Brett is using his incredible mind to ask the tough questions that often push against the grain of conventional wisdom. New ways of thinking about things is integral to making large amounts of progress. We need to push hard for not just a revival, but for growth in the nuclear industry, And Brett's style of advocacy, which highlights how self-imposed obstacles in the regulatory system, and emphasizing the untapped value of this technology, is a refreshing outlook on how we can be engaging in environmental activism. Firm honesty in confronting misconceptions, with a passionate eloquence in describing the potential for a nuclear-powered future, are valuable communication strategies to the pro-nuclear environmental movement.
1: Absolutely. We are very excited to get to talk to one of the up-and-coming movers and shakers, in the nuclear power community. He brings up a lot of hope and optimism for the future by giving us a real path forward to deep decarbonization. Let's get right to it. Here's our conversation with Brett Kugomas. Brett, thanks for joining us today.
2: Yeah,
0: my pleasure to be here. Thank you. So. Many people know you as the brain behind the Titans of Nuclear podcast. Uh, you've conducted hundreds and hundreds of interviews with experts surrounding many aspects of nuclear power. This seems like an overly broad question, but what are some of the major conclusions you've reached from these discussions?
2: Yeah, okay, well, let's get right into it. Um, I think probably the most uh, counterintuitive and controversial takeaway that I've gotten from you know, what's been uh, almost 1,500... Uh, interviews with experts over the last three years um, has been that there's nothing fundamentally wrong with nuclear technology um, and that the business model incentives of the nuclear industry itself has driven it into um, uneconomic um, competitiveness and where the nuclear industry has really been in some worst enemies and the downfall of this uh, use of this really magical magical technology
1: that makes sense yeah just talking to all the various aspects of it yeah i think a lot of us get that kind of kind of vibe it's just like if it's so good why didn't it just take off yeah you know so yeah and i I can um,
2: elaborate a little bit more also if you'd like but uh sure the, the basic idea was that you know, when you built nuclear back in the 1950s and 60s, I mean, this is when they were talking about how like electricity was going to be too cheap to meter, right? Yeah. And and it, and it was, but that also meant that nobody was making any money. Um, so the industry started looking for ways to make it more difficult to make it more expensive. Mo- mostly driven by the utilities themselves. Uh, electric utilities in the U.S. at that time period operated on what's called a cost-plus model. So they only they get paid a percentage of how much. You know, they spend. And so if they want to increase their their, uh, total amount of profit that they bring into their organization, they have to spend more money. And so utilities themselves were not incentivized to sell cheap electricity. They were incentivized to sell as as expensive electricity as they could get away with. And so that's what they did. And one of the ways that they did this, specifically within the nuclear sector, where there was uh, not much pushback, was by increasing the regulatory burden. So if you add all these extremely detailed and extremely specific ways on how you have to build a nuclear plant, um, it makes it ever more expensive. And so these costs escalated from you know, what was just a few hundred million dollars to build a plant that could power a million-person city. A million-person city, I mean, that's incredible that one building do that and build it for just a couple hundred million dollars they drove those costs all the way through the roof to you know, what is now $10 billion for that same facility. And so they got away with this all the way through the 1970s, you know, mostly driven by utilities themselves. And then it led to a total collapse in new development because public commissions and the federal government stepped in and said, this is just too expensive. Now we've got to find other energy sources. But the problem is they'd already written the rules, so now that they couldn't get out of them. And this is why people think that nuclear is dangerous, because we've increased the um, the regulations around safety so much, mistakenly think it's dangerous. And this is why nuclear is so uncompetitive, is because we've written into the rules over decades of ways to make it uncompetitive economically, intentionally.
0: And I want to clarify, uh, people often say too cheap to meter. and a lot of people hear that and they think it was meant to be free. But what that statement was really referring to is kind of like how we have cell phone and internet today, where it's you, you get a bandwidth and you can use whatever within that bandwidth every month and you pay the monthly fee, but it's not metered.
2: Well, right. Yeah. Or, or water, right? Like yeah. in most places, like, yeah, you're paying per amount of water you use, but you don't really think about, um, how much you're consuming because, you know, you, you can pretty much use as much as you want. And it's like a difference between, you know like on your bill you know, 30 bucks or 35 bucks you know it's just it's just it's it's not enough to think about uh, when you use more and by the way that's what we want in society that's how society becomes prosperous when we create energy that is you know, quote unquote too cheap to meter
1: basically the cost of the wires to bring it to your house that's pretty much right it. exactly yeah cool um, moving on the climate problem is the reason why many people have taken a second look at politically incorrect nuclear power. You have the guts to say what many nuclear nerds are thinking and that nuclear power is not part of the solution to climate change, but that nuclear power is the solution to climate change. What basic math and physics got you to rule out all other technologies?
2: Yeah, okay, um, and I can answer that in, in two ways. First off, maybe I'll try to take a stab at, you know, why other people don't say it so as like forcefully as I do. Um, and then I'll actually explain the math behind it. Um, I, I, th- I think at the end of the day, most people like want to be liked more than you know, they want um, to they, they like actually solve like a real problem at hand. So, so when it comes to climate, I think like the strongest climate advocates are doing it because like within their social circles, like that is an acceptable like persona for them to take on. It's an identity that they take on, that they get rewarded, not because they actually want to solve climate change. And, and the same with nu- a lot of nuclear advocates, too. You know, people who are in the nuclear industry already get beaten up so much. You know, they're constantly put on the defensive by like, people in their social networks that they don't want to go that extra mile of saying, no, no, no nuclear is the only technology that can get them out of this because they wanna at least have something that they can like say with their friends, like, oh, let's all hold hands. You come with solar, you come with wind, you come with your idea, I'll come with my idea. And we can all have like, you know, we can all be happy together. They prefer that over actually solving the climate problem. Um, so I think that's one of the reasons that, uh, that, that you hear so much about that. Now let's walk through the math. It's pretty simple. Um, the, the biggest fallacy within the climate change arena is that if we got to zero new emissions, that the problem would solve itself. You know, most, people, like, most people think of it like they think of our issue with ozone depletion, that the earth is self-healing on like a, a couple-decade time scale. That is not the case with climate. The, the carbon emissions that we've put into the air over the last you know, 100 years or so you know, will be a problem for many thousands of years. It won't self-heal. And so its heat-capturing capacity will still remain even if we get to zero new emissions. Um, so we could find ourselves in a situation where we do, you know, quote unquote everything right, get to zero new emissions, and yet the every single year, you know, until we hit a new equilibrium point, um, the, the temperature keeps on increasing and increasing and increasing. And most people would at that point say, wait, wait, wait a minute, we, we got tricked. We haven't actually solved problem. Temperatures are getting hotter and hotter every year. Water levels are rising every year. What is this that we've been working on all of this time? Um, And so so that's the situation that we find ourselves in, in in the zero uh, new emission scenario. So so what do we need to actually solve climate change? We need to go net negative. Okay? And we need to go vastly net negative. So this is the beginning of the math that leads us to only nuclear. So uh, if you're going to go net negative, you've essentially got two ways of doing it, uh, biologically or technologically. Uh, now, there's certain limits on biology. You can only grow so many trees, uh, and we could calculate. We could calculate how much carbon capturing capacity you know, trees have over all the land on Earth if we used it, um, and it's just not nearly enough. You know, as I like to say, we've burned 100 million years worth of trees in the last 100 years. The oil that we dug in Yeah, so, so yeah. you're not gonna be able to you know, plant 20 years worth of trees or 100 years worth of trees and get ourselves out of the situation. It just doesn't capture enough carbon. So you have to do it technologically. Now, uh, any technological solution that we have is going to require energy in order to do this. And every energy source has a carbon footprint. So now you've got to go down the list and you have to say, okay, whatever you know, carbon capturing technology that you're going to use, what are its energy requirements? And then you have to look at all the energy sources and say, well, how much carbon does it emit, right? Because if you are, you know, requiring a kilowatt hour to remove, um, you know, 20 grams of CO2, but to produce that kilowatt hour, you know, with renewables, you have to emit 30 grams of CO2. <laughs> Your direct air capture system um, could actually have the opposite, impact of, uh, opposite effect that you wanted. Um, and so when you just run this, the math on carbon emissions for any energy source, uh, and you look at our carbon capturing technologies and their energy requirements, um, there's a pretty clear line that only nuclear falls under. And, and it's just so obvious why, because... When you exploit atomic forces like nuclear does, instead of chemical forces, like every other technology does, um, you're using orders of magnitude less mass, right? And it,
1: like six orders.:
2: Yeah Oh I mean yeah, exactly. Like, it's just yeah. incredible. Um, and so and, and all carbon footprints of any energy source, um, your life cycle emissions, is tied to the amount of mass of your system. The amount of mass that you have to process, the amount of mass that you have to move out of the ground, the amount of mass that you have to transport, everything is correlated to mass. And so what you need is the lowest mass or highest energy density system possible. And like you said, nuclear does that by six orders of magnitude. It is a no-brainer based on
1: math alone. You make a lot of sense. And I think what you've said before is that, when uh, you talk about this, is that carbon negative fuels need to reach parity with and then become cheaper than carbon positive fuels. Yep. Can you explain the statement and why is carbon negative so important? Which you've already kind of explained. Yeah.
2: But. Well, yeah. So I mean, if you if you create carbon negative fuels and just you know sell them into the global marketplace, uh, the problem solves itself using market forces, and it perfectly aligns all incentives. If every you know uh, if, if every uh, ounce of energy that you're, you're burning, right? If every ounce of fuel that you're burning or consuming has the net effect of taking carbon out of the air, then burn, baby, burn, right? Let's, you know, it's like, let's build as much as we can. Let's drive as much as we can. Let's fly as much as we can. Let's, you know, increase prosperity for seven, eight, and nine, then 10 billion humans on planet earth as much as we can. And that is what is going to save climate. It totally, deconstructs and reconstructs the paradigm around how to solve climate change. But it does so in a way where it's a win-win. But it requires producing carbon-negative fuels that are cheaper than carbon-positive fuels. And once again, mathematically, that can only be done with nuclear energy.
1: So so basically, you would have nuclear be so cheap that you would run a carbon sequestration system when you build a nuclear power plant, so it would produce electricity and suck carbon out of the air and still be cheaper than fossil fuel. Correct.
2: And when you look into but, like, the actual mechanical systems involved in building a nuclear power plant, the synergies are just incredible. You already have to flow a large amount of coolant um, in order to create the cold side of your turbine. Right. And so that same energy that's required to flow coolant, whether it be seawater or you can capture CO2 out of or air and air cooling systems, is half of the energy equation of a carbon sequestration system anyway. So you're getting half of it for free if you use nuclear.
0: So to clarify, like an example, when you say carbon negative fuel, um, I can think of like a carbon neutral fuel where we pull the CO2 out of the atmosphere put it into sin fuel, and then put that into a vehicle, which can then burn it back into the atmosphere. But if there's a policy framework where you say, okay, you pull a kilo of carbon out of the atmosphere, put that one in some basalt injection sequestration system, and then pull another one out, and then you could put that fuel onto the market. Is that what you're thinking? Or is there like a different scenario?
2: I'm actually thinking something a lot um, simpler and a lot more like market-friendly that doesn't require that policy. What I'm thinking is just literally the products that we use in our everyday life capture some of that carbon. So when we make plastics, we are sequestering carbons for thousands of years. When so people say plastics last for thousands of years, oh my God, that's terrible. No, that's amazing <laughs> because it can sequester carbon for thousands of years. So we should be building everything out of engineered plastics, including skyscrapers and buildings. And you could do that, by the way. Right now, we can make uh, plastics with better structural properties than steel. It's just too expensive. With the system that I'm proposing, not only would it be cheaper and the buildings would perform better, it would also uh, be a carbon negative system.
1: It seems like oil would be a good medium for this, like basically makes and fuel oil that could be used for fueling our combustion transportation engines and then also using that oil to make plastics. Correct. That's exactly right. Cool.
0: Um, so utilities and electricity economics are kind of hard for a lot of people to grasp, but you shed light on how utilities used to make their money on large capital investments, uh, and this incentivized the project sizes to increase to the point where supply chains you know, started to fall fall apart and costs Dramatically increased. Um, can you expand on the process that led to the new nuclear capacity pricing itself out uh, even before the Three Mile Island scare?
2: Yeah, exactly. And this just harkens back to you know, what we began our conversation with, but I'll get a little bit more specific. So, one of the easiest ways to justify a large capital investment, which is what utilities wanted to do, because remember the cost plus model, that's how they made their money. The easiest way to justify it is to say, "Hey, we're going to give people more power, so let's just build a bigger facility." And historically, you know, in the fossil industry, when we build bigger facilities, we get uh, better economies of scale, we get you know, more efficient burning of our fuel. So that's what we're going to do in nuclear too. And then everyone just rubber stamped that. They said, "Okay, yeah, this sounds like pretty logical. We'll just build bigger power plants." Um, but what they didn't anticipate is that if you keep building bigger and bigger, and that's what they did. From 400 to 500 to 600 to 700 to 900 to 1000 to 1100, now up to 1500 megawatts. And it's just so crazy. Um, as you build that big, some of the components, you're narrowing the supply chain. So, for instance, like your pressure vessel, your steam turbine, you are putting yourself in a realm where instead of the companies that make them having a, a factory already set up that can make 10 or 20 or 30 or 50 a year like you can at the 500 megawatt level, now it's a factory that can only make one a year at the 1,100 megawatt level. And so now the the price for that individual component goes through the roof just because you don't have economies of scale of manufacturing production within your supply chain. And so this is one of the things that drove drove nuclear into economic uncompetitiveness uh, all the way through the 1970s. And then it was so economically uncompetitive, the public commissions shut them all down, 200 contracts were canceled, and this was the death of the nuclear industry. And this happened before Three Mile Island. Most people in the nuclear industry blame it on Three Mile Island because around the same time, and they want to look for an, an excuse for their poor economic performance that wasn't their fault. So they can just blame it on somebody else, blame it on bad happenstance, blame it on an accident. Blame it on human factors. Blame it on Jane Fonda. Blame it on the environmentalists. But yeah. it's just blaming it on other people. It was their fault. They, they built a uh, very difficult to construct um, series of nuclear power plants.
1: It seems like a a problem with the old time, you know, pre nineteen nineties utilities vertically integrated system is that it caused these projects to get way too big. And then physically, you just can't build the machinery to make it that big. Uh, yeah, it, it seems like that that model is what killed nuclear power in in the beginning. And is that kind of what you think?
2: Yeah, and, and we can see the same analogies in other industries too. Um, so you know, even like in you know, space and everything, when you we, when you get to this realm that only a couple companies can make the key components. And it just doesn't become manufacturable. It doesn't become part of the standard supply chain. Um, I mean, this was, the, en- I mean, this was st- the end of space travel, right? Like, we just built rockets that were right. too expensive and that were controlled by, like, a consortium of just a couple, a couple um, defense contractors.
0: The space mafia. So,
1: basically, <laughs> space mafia. So, instead of SLS, a bunch of SpaceX is competing.
2: Right. That's what I want to see in the nuclear industry.
1: Um one of your more what I call a spicy take is that the nuclear industry stopped being producers of nuclear power and started becoming producers of nuclear safety. You say the nuclear industry actually played into irrational radiation fears in order to win large and expensive safety overhaul contracts. Can you tell us more about this?
2: Yeah, sure. So, um I said the industry died and 1978. That's not exactly true. The developer side of the nuclear industry died, the the side that was trying to sell power plants. Um, But they still had their existing services business that was still intact, that sold upgrades um, into existing power plants. And so instead of pushing back on the, the, the public sentiment and the fear around Three Mile Island, they actually hyped it up and they encouraged it and they said, oh, you're right. You're so right. This was the worst thing that ever could happen. Oh, my God, it would have killed a million people, which it couldn't have. It could have killed zero people. Um, so let's use regulatory capture in order to mandate upgrades to existing facilities. And this became the new nuclear business model. And so every time that there's been an accident or even a thought of an accident since, the industry goes back to the regulators and says, you know, we want to you know, do safety analysis and safety upgrade and safety equipment. And we're done in backup systems. And whereas, you know, early on when they built these plants and they only made, you know, the nuclear side maybe only made like 50 million, maybe $100 million per plant because the plants themselves only cost like you know, $400 million. The nuclear part was only a small piece of it. Uh, now they're making $300, $400 million per plant just on the upgrades. And so they like tripled their entire market size, switching to s- selling safety services and safety equipment. And this was all fueled by them exaggerating the risks of radiation itself. And so they went around and they came up with all these new ways of measuring radiation, um, new, uh, or they you know, they've resurfaced some old ways, like the linear no threshold model. They literally just changed the radiation standards. They said they got the radiation groups around the world to say it's a thousand times more dangerous than it was yesterday. Not true. Um, and that therefore increased the requirements for what it took to, quote unquote, protect the public. Um, this became the new nuclear business model. So they got $300 million per plant after Three Mile Island, another $300 million per plant, after Chernobyl, another you know, a couple hundred million dollars per plant after September 11th, another couple hundred million dollars per plant after Fukushima. And every single time that an accident happens, even if it doesn't hurt anyone or doesn't kill anyone, or even in fact proves the need for less safety systems, the nuclear industry says, no, this is a reason that we need to upgrade our existing plants with more safety systems. Well, and by the way, pay us extraordinary amounts of money to do this because it's in the interest of public health.
0: Just to add on that, um, there's this perception now that the decommissioning industry itself there's this incentive to shut down the plants, even if they could go for another twenty years, there's actually more money in shutting them down due to the you know all the money that goes into the decommissioning account, and that's another growing industry that's becoming very profitable to uh companies that are now working under this incentive system um,
2: correct. Yeah, out of, out of one half of the industry's mouth, they're saying, oh, no, we need to preserve existing plants. Um, we need to keep them online. And then the other half of their mouth, um, they're actually the ones making the decision to shut them down because they get paid a lot of money. They've been putting money into these decommissioning funds that has been you know accruing interest over all these years. Um, and now there's a pot of gold uh, for the nuclear companies if they shut down nuclear plants.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, this is almost just gotten to a absurd levels to where it plays into the nuclear skeptics. They're just like, you know, a billion dollars to decommission a plant, you know, that's more than plants used to cost just for inflation, you know, half a century ago.
2: Exactly, exactly. And, and this is why it's not irrational that the public hates nuclear or that some part of the public, you know, actually, I don't think most people hate nuclear. Uh, the people who are skeptical, who don't like it, they are not being irrational. They are acting super rationally compared, you know, based on the information that the nuclear industry is putting in front of them.
0: Oh. So,
1: <laughs> and, and the, 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 like these scare tactics just got out of control. And then I, I think in a another interview, I heard you talking about like how people took advice from the union of concerned scientists that were full of a bunch of non-science members yeah
2: yeah pretty amazing which
1: is crazy
2: well listen you can start any think tank with any name that you want and then, <laughs> you know just get your people to you know quote in op-eds and write a few articles here and there put you know, position themselves as experts yeah. and yeah if you've got a name yeah, you
0: know, why not designated greenpeace nuclear expert has an opinion every yeah. newspaper publishes it so yeah Oftentimes, you go very hard against the regulators of the nuclear industry. Uh, you talk about how they have this absolute power to do whatever they want, no matter how absurd. Uh, many in the nuclear movement agree with this assessment. Um, how much blame do you put on the regulators for stopping nuclear progress, though?
2: Well, the industry itself, you know, has—it's not just the regulators. I mean, the regulators are like born out of our own actions, and like I don't want to. I don't want to um, disparage any like specific regulator or any person at the regulators. Like they're just doing their jobs. Right. But we have created a machine that makes nuclear more expensive through regulations. Like, like intentionally, that is what the industry has done. And so, you know, that is the way that you mandate uh, these high costs. So if we want to have low costs, we have to figure a way to get, out of those mandates, so you know, like what, like here's a good example. Like one thing we could just do is just remove the nuclear regulatory bodies altogether. It's like you know, you know, we still have all these other agencies that are required to make sure that facilities are, are physically safe. Like we have, like
0: yeah, we, you know what we, like we you don't have a fossil fuel regulatory. Costs commission (laughs)
2: right but but like the worst thing that could happen in a nuclear accident you know most people think oh the worst thing could happen is you know it spreads out spreads out all this toxic radioactive radiation and kills all these people so that's why you need this special body to like look at it but that's not true like like in the case of an accident um, it doesn't spread enough radiation to hurt anybody in the public so it's like why would you need whereas like let's say if a building fell down you know, right? Like a, like a skyscraper, like a thousand people would die instantly. Yeah. Okay. So, like, we should have the exact same. I'm not saying we shouldn't have any regulations for nuclear power plants. They should just be the exact same as for like the, the building industry, right? Like, a, you know, like assess the risk. Okay. If the building were to fall, it would kill someone inside the building. So, we mandate what the, you know, the rebar distance should be and the thickness of the concrete. And you just have a, a trained inspector sign off on it, and that's that. So, you could do the same for the nuclear industry. Just Make the regulations, um, you know, part of what the building industry does or the environmental industries fold it into their existing operations, um, and 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 then you know, then it would be on an equal playing field against all other buildings and technologies in terms of what the cost would be.
0: Yeah, that would make a lot of sense.
1: So it's just putting things in the proper perspective and having things hold the same amount of weight as other industries if we can just hold things to that fair standard you know the regulatory process wouldn't be such a you know industry killer
2: right i mean that's if you want cheap energy <laughs> you know, it's like right if, if you if you don't care about cheap energy i mean you care about like how you feel about something you know you have as many regulators and have as much expense as you want it's
0: a jobs program so that,
2: <laughs> and by the way this is what we have in other industries too i mean there's a lot of things that are in place just because it makes us feel a certain way. Um, and, that, and that's, you know, in some ways, that's society's choice.
1: Interesting. You know, you know what I was going to say is I'm kind of, I'm, I'm a fan of libertarian philosophy and I'm not, so how, not sure how much I, you know, agree with parties and whatnot, but I, I was talking to a lot of people in the, quote, liberty movement, and uh, they are very big supporters of nuclear power, and that kind of sounds ironic because it seems like costs have gotten so high; it takes big state actors to to, to make these plants. Uh, but if we just adjusted the regulations, it would it would be cheaper than fossil fuel, even.
2: Let me put it this way: if all you did was remove the the radiation authorities. You know, across the world, um, every human being on planet Earth would have clean air, clean water, and unlimited power, and all of that leading to just this huge increase in prosperity for for no cost, right? Like we wouldn't have to like no government would have to get involved with subsidies or anything. Like it, that would just happen on its own, like just through the natural forces. If all you did was remove the powers of the radiation authorities
1: it seems like yeah exactly and it seems like if you if you look at it compared just based on the amount of fuel you need the people that have the harder job are the fossil fuel people because they have to move so many tons of stuff just to provide power and we can get rid of that whole like extreme extraction that could undercut them on price and i'm kind of rambling here but no
2: you're absolutely right yeah everyone's in who's like a nuclear fan has heard this like notion that like a coke can worth of material could power your entire life well let me just add something to that nuclear is uranium is as abundant in the earth as tin is and you know like you've had it like a thing tinfoil is now like aluminum foil but it used to be tin. and you can imagine if you just went to the supermarket and bought one roll of of tinfoil um if that was all you'd ever need for power consumption for everything you'd ever do, flying around the world. Like that was all your costs were paid for by just digging one tinfoil's worth, one roll of tinfoil out of the ground. That's incredible. That's what nuclear can do. Like literally, this, yeah. This is the the earth, like the future of humanity that we want, right? Like everything you've ever seen in every science fiction episode of like where we could get in twenty five hundred. Like we could have that now. <laughs>
0: absolutely
1: yeah i mean it's like we have this gift this literal if there was a god or for those who believe there is a god uh it seems like the uranium atom was put in the earth's crust exactly to solve this problem
2: amen brother so amen yeah yeah,
1: (laughs) for sure all right well moving on uh you talked this a a little bit about you know the the overblown risks of meltdowns, but uh, can you can you go into some detail about how Fukushima really presented no real risk to the general public? And uh, you talk in detail about how only a teaspoon of toxic radioactive iodine escaped containment during the accident. And I am pro nuclear, but I find that kind of cr- a crazy notion. And uh, if so, why why this overreaction by the Japanese government
2: yep um, so let's let's go all the way back to Chernobyl just to kind of characterize like which radionuclides are environmental contaminants and which aren't um, the, the most commonly accepted wisdom right now is that at you know Chernobyl which was the worst case scenario a graphite reactor blew up caught on fire you know all of the radioactive material that could possibly spew out spewed out to the environment and even in that case um only iodine one hundred and thirty one led to cancers, and that's just because there aren't that many radioactive elements that can move through biological pathways. Maybe cesium, maybe stratinum, but the only one that can both move through biological pathways and accumulate in your body to the point of like giving you enough radiation, enough dose to, to cause a cancer is iodine one hundred and thirty one. That's the that's what we've learned from Chernobyl, and we could talk about it even if that's true at some point. But let's set that as a bounding condition right now, that most, you know, most radiation scientists in the world agree that only iodine-131 is an environmental contaminant, and that was, you know, from Chernobyl. So now let's look at Fukushima, we can, we, you know, we saw, here's an example of a light water reactor melting down, as a matter of fact, three of them, you know, complete core meltdowns, the roof blew off, you know, tsunami, you know, totally wrecked things and moved things everywhere. Um, and so the the building was just like totally exposed to the environment and and even in that case, with three gigawatt school, three gigawatt cores of a light water reactor melting down and being exposed to the environment, only twenty eight grams of iodine one thirty one went into the environment twenty eight grams, and that is the equivalent of one a little over one teaspoon worth of material. So you have in the worst case possible scenario for a light water reactor, only one teaspoon of iodine-131, the only radioactive uh, environmental contaminant that can cause damage to people, uh, was released. So, I mean, that's pretty eye-opening. Um, and that would, that would even, you know, if one were just being logical about the whole thing, One would say that you you don't need any safety – if every safety system is disabled and only one teaspoon of environmental toxin gets out, maybe you don't need any safety systems at all would be the logical
1: conclusion from that. You just risk a totaling of your expensive machine basically. Right. Um,
2: And just self-insure against that. That's what every other industry does.
1: Yeah, I I saw this um, segment on 60 Minutes Australia – and Ben Hurd, yeah, uh, you've interviewed him. No. Uh our friend at Bright New World, uh, big pro-nuclear guy, who might end up persuading the continent of Australia to go nuclear. Uh, he he visited on TV Fukushima. Just like this is a big industrial accident inside the perimeters of the of the building. No. I mean, of the of of you know, within the confines of the plant itself. And it's not doing anything really to anybody outside of it. And it, it, it's just, it's just kind of amazing that, you know, you say, I mean, I, I believe what you're saying, but it's like you even go to saying maybe the containment, the mega containment structures we have are unnecessary.
2: Yeah. And in this case, it was counterproductive. Um, so like you could talk about containment or confinement. I would always advocate for confinement over containment because containment, uh, creates a pressure boundary. So it's the equivalent of turning your hot pot into a pressure cooker, right? And pressure cooker can yield to a, like a violent, uh, kinetic energy event, um, that can spew materials. So that's, you know, that's what happened. Um, and even that wasn't enough to, to hurt anybody. But like, if you want to mostly, like, if you want to keep material in a certain place, um, what I would do is create a confinement barrier instead of a containment barrier. Just don't make it airtight, and you're totally fine.
0: So you have Crazy. this notorious wager where uh, you'll offer ten thousand dollars to anyone who can prove that a meltdown from a light water reactor can hurt a member of the general public in a realistic scenario. Um, you have had zero takers. Uh, can you explain why it's so hard to hurt the public with a light water reactor meltdown? Like, uh,
2: yeah, so I mean, I, I based that wager initially off of just the evidence from Fukushima. If Fukushima, three gigawatt scale cores, you know, the roof blew off, tsunami to you know, shake everything up. Um, if that wasn't enough to hurt a single member of the public with radiation, I'm like, well, what possibly could? But, so that's like just from like empirical evidence, we can I can I can make the claim that it is impossible. Um, and then you know if anyone wants to challenge, me, great. Like I got a boat I got a boatload of money to pay you if you can prove, prove me wrong. And then on top of that, we can also just talk about it um, analytically as well why that's the case. And it, and it's pretty simple. If you have any toxin whatsoever, um, the more that you spread it out across a larger volume. The more that you reduce its toxic efficacy, right, or its toxicity, right, because it's it's a function of concentration. So, like, I wouldn't want to drink a teaspoon of Clorox, um, but if you put a teaspoon of Clorox into a pool, I wouldn't mind, you know, drinking a teaspoon of that. Um, And if you put a you know a a teaspoon of Clorox into you know the, the, the 100 million acres worth of ocean, like what happened in Fukushima it's <laughs> it's not going to cause a hazard. Um, so you know sometimes people say dilution is the solution to pollution. and so the same thing applies with the nuclear meltdown. The very act of it escaping from the facility and spreading out off across of a volume right um, reduces its concentration and thus reduces its potency and thus makes it not a hazard
1: anymore. You learn that in principles of chemistry when you're working under a hood. The reason why you work under a hood is you don't want fumes and stuff to pollute the air you're right around, but let it go into the atmosphere and it degrades itself, you know, just mix it around. Yep.
0: Yeah, the dose makes the damage is, you know, first rule of toxicity. And it's it's, it's another uh, example I bring up in science communication where um, I think there's this Uh, when people were explaining they're putting the plutonium rtgs on spacecraft uh, and they're saying like well if the rocket explodes it's just going to spread the plutonium over you know 200 square miles over the ocean and to a scientist that makes sense like okay it's not a problem anymore but to the general public that seems terrifying um that you know some radioactive material is going to be spread so widely open so i think teaching just the basic principle of the dose makes the damage is so important for uh, public literacy and science.
2: And yeah, I mean, it's right. like, you know, I feel fine walking, walking on a you know, like a street uh, or the sidewalk of a street where there are cars next to me, but I don't feel so fine like when I'm right next to the muffler, you know, like sometimes you <laughs> hold your breath when you walk past a car and I certainly wouldn't feel fine um, if I put my mouth right up against the exhaust pipe, right? Yeah. Um. And so that's just another kind of example of how we experience that in our
1: daily lives. Sure. Uh, Another thing you say that rubs people in the nuclear movement the wrong way is that nuclear power production side of things is riddled with bad engineering. You especially focus on engineering of containment structures and even go as far to say as the containment we built today is not necessary. You already kind of described this, but let's get a refresher. What makes you say this?
2: Yeah, so, um, so, yeah, we talked a little bit about containment versus confinement, but there's all sorts of other bad engineering as well. And this is, this okay. is primarily because um, you know, most nuclear systems are designed um, to make nuclear expensive, not to make it inexpensive, right? That's the business model. Um, so that's why I say it's bad engineering if what you're optimizing for is cost of electricity. But yeah, there are, other, um, there are other examples like the containment structure where what you're saying is, hey, we're designing a system to make our system more safe, quote, unquote. Um, but in, in reality, it makes it more dangerous. Um, so that's the whole thing about creating this like uh, pressure cooker versus a hot pot type thing. They literally wrote into the rules, let's create a pressure cooker instead of a hot pot, whereas a hot pot is less dangerous. Um, and they did it in the name of safety. And so the containment structure is, is just one example of that. Um, but overall, I mean, we could extend this this entire thesis to, to the the whole concept of of um, of nuclear safety and nuclear costs in general. Like, if what you care about is safety, what you want is to create as much of the power source um, that has the best safety profile, uh, right? And so. So that you know, so in order to do that you just want to reduce the costs of that as much as possible, and so you know we know that the fossil you know industry has all these terrible consequences from an air pollution perspective. Um, so we should build power structures that are cheaper than fossil plants um, and then we'll save lives from uh, not killing people with air pollution, and so you could even use the safety argument to say, hey, let's build nuclear power plants that are cheaper and even have less safety systems in them in order to save more lives. Um, you could use it that way um, as well, but the nuclear industry doesn't do that, right? Because what they want to do is sell expensive nuclear power. That's how they make money.
1: Like it's, yeah, You bring up the point about also um, I think it was either containment or pressure vessels that they used to like weld together in pieces on site. And now they have to use like these large forgings to build them. And then you, I remember you said something like, you know, it's bad engineering to not find a substitute way of making something that's cheaper that can do the exact same thing. And we've refused to do that. Like you were talking about something about the way we did welds back in the day with copper And now we have different weld filler material where we can—I forget what you were referring to, but um, things like that. So, like that's another would be another example of the bad engineering, right? Yeah,
2: uh, yeah, I'd be happy to explain that further. So, you know, there's a requirement written into the rules that a reactor pressure vessel has to be forged, Um, and what that means is you you start off with a big chunk of metal and then you kind of stretch it out. Um, Whereas, you know, most pressure vessels are made through um, you get a, a plate of steel um, or whatever material, um, and then you—it's you know, a, it's a flat plate. and You just roll it and you weld it along a seam, and that's that. Now, when they did that early on in the nuclear industry, um, and they used to weld it with a, a, a welding material that had copper in it, um, they, that, the welding—the weld would become weaker than the outside structure. Because radiation affects copper in kind of a weird way, a copper alloy in kind of a weird way, where the copper groups together and then becomes brittle and then you know, breaks under pressure. Hmm. So, um, so they wrote in this rule: Hey, it's got to be forged then. Instead of saying, "Well, why don't you just demonstrate sufficient strength properties and do it however you know is the best way to do it?" And so, you know, the best way to do it would just be, or the most economical. It would and meeting the same structural requirements would just be well let's just weld it like we do every other pressure vessel um but with a different with a different weld filler material non-copper based one and then you wouldn't have the embrittlement problem um and so yeah so instead of doing it that way they uh, they chose just you know to, to keep on making more complicated and design, keep designing around forged systems and Instead of challenging the very, the very premise of you know, why should this be forged at all?
1: Because um, in or- order to for- forge, you need these furnaces that are unfathomably large. When you know we even today we we can we have additive manufacturing too, where we could even potentially layer by layer melt metal powder right to become its own pressure vessel. Do you think that that's also a new technology? advancement for, for nuclear that could bypass the forging problem?
2: Well, the, the, the problem is, the, is complying with the requirements instead of challenging the requirements. There's a million ways to mm. engineer systems um, and I, I wouldn't speculate on the absolute best one. Maybe 3D printing could be the best, especially if you're working in some complex geometries um, or if they're going to be kind of custom made to different applications or custom fit to this or that. That could be really interesting. Um, it's also pretty easy to just kind of take a steel plate and roll it up and, and weld it as well. But yeah, the, the problem is the, is the engineering mentality. The engineering mentality um, is to design to regulations instead of designing to your overall goal. And your overall goal um, should be economics, and in, you know, or you could say, hey, it's safety, but then actually design to make a safe system. Don't design to whatever the regulations say is safe
1: those darn regulations man (laughs) so um, it's no
0: secret that you're a fan of light water reactors and um, for anyone involved with the nuclear advocacy community we see a lot of advocacy for advanced gen 4 reactors molten salt reactors thorium and and all of these you know more experimental future uh oriented reactor designs uh but what what keeps you more committed to uh, the current uh technology that we have available
2: yeah, so this is probably where I, I lose the most friends because you know most people in the like the new nuclear advocacy world kind of like agree with everything I'm saying at this point. They're like, hey, you're logical, but God, I love molten salt or I love high temperature gas reactors. Like that's what got me excited yep. about getting to the nuclear thorium. Oh my God, thorium! <laughs> um, like they, you know they watch mm-hmm. a couple of YouTube videos, and here's how the, their thought process goes. They say, listen, um, nuclear is amazing. I kind of intuit the fundamental principles of energy density. I want to find a way to make it work. Um, Clearly the existing system isn't working. So I I'm looking towards something new and magical um, in order to kind of like do a reboot of the industry. And so they find some new technology. There's like 50 different technologies that were all experimented with, you know, in the early days of nuclear. So let's dust the book off the shelf of one of these old technologies. And and come up and rationalize why why this solves all nuclear's problems. But if you don't understand what problem it is that you're trying to solve uh, to begin with, uh, then you're not gonna get anywhere. So, like, that's, you know, like most people like, you know, different technologies. That's, that's kind of like the story of why they like them. Or they were a PhD or a professor that spent, you know, 20 years worth of like government grant money pursuing that technology. <laughs> and so they've like, learned to love it and learned to come up with the ways to think that it's the best. Um, whereas industry experience shows us that, you know, if you want to build something that's cheap above all else, you know, stick to the standard supply chain. Don't do anything funny with materials. Don't do anything funny with chemistry. That's how you get yourself in trouble. Um, And so, you know, I am sure that some of these other reactor types, like have their, their like good purposes. Right, um, and and maybe they will be the, in the future the best way to produce electricity too. Like right now, you could, like you can make a good argument, you know, why certain types of reactors are better for like high temperature processes or this or that, or for space travel. Um, those are very niche applications, and you could probably make the argument um, for why they would be better uh, even for electricity production if the entire supply chain was built out and if all of the operational issues were worked out. But they're not, okay? We've got, you know, 100 years worth worth of experience with the steam ranking cycle, with with dealing with just like water-based power plant technologies. There's there's probably 100,000 power plants, you know, when you look across like small ones for industrial applications operating across the world today, and they all use water, okay? There's a reason that they all use water, okay? So, like, if what we're optimizing for is is cheap electricity, is cheap power production, like, stick with what like works in industry today and solve the challenges that are actually making it expensive. That's my general position.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm, and I'm, I'm concerned that, you know, I have, I have, for example, I like the lifter reactor, just the idea of it, but I'm like. Look, do we really need to test out another thing? You, like, we we could do like France did and pick a design or a few designs and just build it again and again and again until you get tired of building it to where it's easy. And it's, I just figure, you know, I think I like your philosophy of keep it simple, stupid, because we we don't need to overcomplicate things. There's there's nothing intrinsically wrong with nuclear power today that we need to innovate a new design it's yeah you know yeah.
2: and what i would say like and, and, and like with your whole lifter comment like you may be right that might be the coolest best you know future energy source ever okay so but if you really believe that if you were a nuclear yeah. engineer and you really believe that that is the best then do me a favor build 1000 pwrs first Yes. Get yourself a hundred billion dollar a year R and D budget because you're selling so many goddamn PWRs. You're just so filthy rich. You have all the money in the world to experiment with anything, and solve any material issue, any corrosion issue. Invent new pumps. Invent a new supply chain. Do that first, and then build your lifter. If you really believe.
0: One of the best features that you know uh, when when people try to argue what what reactor is the best based on what features they offer, you know the fact that. If a reactor is on the shelf and can be built tomorrow, that's a pretty substantial feature over a lot of other hypothetical ones. Um, So, yeah, I agree. We got to, like, do this job and and solve this problem as fast as possible. And that requires getting reactors up and running as fast as possible. So we got to take what's on the shelf now, no matter what the future might bring.
1: I mean, the climate issue demands it. Like, if things are as dire as people say they are, and we have to take that stuff out of the air again— like, you know, we are losing time. Every, if, like the most dangerous reactor is the one that's not built, in my opinion. Yes.
2: Yeah, <laughs> that's so good. That's so good.
1: You can steal that from me if you <laughs> oh, want. Oh, I
2: will. But... I love that so much. <laughs>
1: um, uh, hey, Brett, we could talk to you forever, but we're reaching our end of our time for today. Uh, is there anything else you wanted to chat about? And where can listeners learn more about you? And the work done by the Energy Impact Center.
2: Yeah, no, this has been a lot of fun. Um, thanks for walking me through all this, guys. Uh, you know, If you want to learn more about nuclear energy or kind of you know, get hooked into the nitty-gritty details, you can listen to the Titans Nuclear Podcast. We've got almost 300 um, episodes online now. We'll probably do another 300 more before we're done. Um, and we really just try to be as comprehensive as possible and just try to get into the weeds of every topic around policy, economics, technology, regulations, you name it. So that's one place you know, it's available wherever podcasts are, Titans of Nuclear. Um, to follow the work that we're doing more broadly at the Energy Impact Center, um, you probably just follow me on LinkedIn. That's where I'm most active. I don't get on Twitter or any of the other social media sites just because most people that I need to interact with to kind of fulfill our mission here, they're in a more professional setting. So just follow me on LinkedIn, Brett Kugelmass, B-R-E-T-K-U-G-E-L-M-A-S-S. Um, and that's where you can keep updated on all the other
1: work that we're doing. Awesome. I I still find it amazing how many podcasts you did and so quickly. I'm just like, what's your secret? R- what is in the coffee you drink <laughs> that's able to get you to do all this?
2: Yeah, motivation.
1: Motivation. Like what, what you're doing is so important. And, you know, I I... I find when I listen to your speeches and stuff, I've just been inspired, and I, I think that we're missing that, and I think you're a voice that's desperately needed, and I don't know, I'm just a huge fan, so.
2: Thank you. No, this has been awesome chatting with you guys, too.
0: Thank you, Brett, yeah.
1: <laughs> what a fantastic talk with Brett Kugomas, director of the Energy Impact Center and host of the Titans of Nuclear podcast. Based on all the research he has done, he really knows his facts and brings some fresh insight into the task of expanding nuclear power generation in America and across the globe. Brett is very passionate and motivated by this issue, which is always needed in the pro-nuclear movement.
0: Definitely. He does a great job at framing the problem and providing a very straightforward solution, effectively communicating and motivating the target audiences needed to enact a nuclear revival that this planet desperately needs. Brett is also humanistic and approachable when it comes to bringing people on board with this mission. Phil, what are your thoughts on the conversation?
1: I like how Brett keeps things simple. We don't have to reinvent the wheel to make nuclear power a success story. We know what mistakes were made, and we can learn from the mistakes in the past in order to better deploy large amounts of this technology to turn the tide on the climate crisis. Many act as if carbon emissions are some sort of puzzle that requires some great restructuring of society. The solution is right in front of us, and it is nuclear power. How about you, Colby?
0: As exciting as future reactor designs can be, Brett makes the important case that we have fully operational light water reactors that work now as the best method of generating electricity, despite the obtrusive regulations holding them back. Even if the technology seems old, it still performs better than everything else we have, all things considered. In order to solve climate change and poverty, we need a massive global build out of cheap, abundant, clean energy. And nuclear is the only thing that can do that. Brett understands the math behind both of these problems and the math behind nuclear being the only core solution to fixing both. It was interesting to hear his findings on how to best reshape policy and make nuclear as competitive as it should be in a solution-oriented economy.
1: Absolutely. Thank you listeners for tuning into this episode of Climate Fix Podcast entitled Selling Power, Not Fear. We also want to thank Brett Kugomas for taking time out of his busy schedule to share his knowledge.
0: If you like what you heard and want more content, you can support Americans for Nuclear Energy's Climate Fix podcast on a per-episode basis with Patreon. Link in the description. To support Americans for Nuclear Energy and our general mission, Visit our website at www.americansfornuclearenergy.org. All words, again, that's www.americansfornuclearenergy.org. We have a link to donate with PayPal under the Mobilize page. You can also purchase some Americans for Nuclear Energy swag under our store page. This will really help us pay for the little things, especially online service fees, to keep our organization running. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and YouTube. Lastly, we really want your feedback. Let us know your thoughts, questions, and concerns. We have a message form on our website under the About section. Or you can email us directly at maine at americansfornuclearenergy.org. All words. Again, that's maine at americansfornuclearenergy.org. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Americans for Nuclear Energy's Climate Fix podcast. We'll see you next time.
1: Edited and produced by Jonna Adams.